Welcome. Today is Friday, July 11, 2008, and our topic this morning for the MITRE Action Conference is pain. I'm Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director, and I'm so glad that all of you were able to join us. And I'd like to go ahead and introduce our guest who will be speaking with us today about the topic of pain for the person who has mitochondrial disease, and that's Dr. Irina Anselm. Dr. Anselm has been involved with MitoAction for several years while we've been growing, and she is a pediatric neurologist at Children's Hospital of Boston and is also involved in some interesting research. And, Irina, why don't I pass that to you and let you introduce yourself a little bit more, and then we'll get started on our topic. Sure. Hello, everybody. I hope everyone can hear me well. And I want to thank everyone for inviting me to speak today about pain and patients with mitochondrial disorders. And I especially want to thank Christy for arranging and mediating these discussions. My name is Irina Amsom. I, uh, I work at Children's Hospital in Boston and have been director of the mitochondrial program since 2001. By training, I'm a child neurologist. We follow a significant number of children and young adults with mitochondrial disorders, and we work very closely together with our colleagues in the Division of Metabolism, Gastroenterology, Cardiology, and, of course, pain service. Pain is a very common feature of any chronic disease, and patients with mitochondrial disorders frequently suffer from different types of pain. Um, as we all know, almost any organ or system may be involved in patients with mitochondrial disorders, and thus they may have a variety of pain. So today, I'm going to talk about the most common types of pain that patients with mitochondrial disorders have, and about our approach to pain management and treatment. Pediatric pain is a very difficult area because it is very hard for us physicians to watch children suffering. And up until a few years ago, there was not much information on how to approach and assess pain in children who are very young or those who are nonverbal. So I'll talk about this as well. And uh, as I told, I am a child neurologist. So I'll be talking mostly about children, but most of what I say relates to adults as well. So what types of pain or pain syndromes are most frequently seen in children and in adults with mitochondrial disorders? First of all, headaches. They are very common. Patients may suffer from migraines, tension headaches, chronic daily headaches, and combination of this. So are mechanisms of these headaches different from those in patients who don't have mitochondrial disorders? No one can answer this question with 100 degrees certainty. So our approach to the treatment of headaches in kids and in adults with mitochondrial disorders is not that much different from our approach to headaches in other patients, but there are several exceptions. So how do we make the decision about how to treat the headaches in a patient? Usually it's based on how frequent and how severe headaches are. If they occur once or twice a month, it's not worth putting patients on a prophylactic or preventive medicine, the medicine that the uh, patient will be taking every day. In these situations, we use uh, so-called abortive drugs. And you probably know about medications called triptans or sumatriptans like Imitrex, Relpax, Zomig. They are extremely popular. 
for treatment of migraines, they're very effective, and at some point they need revolution in uh, migraine management. So we do use them in children, although they're not fully approved, but if you're comfortable using those medications in children who don't have mitochondrial disorders, but we don't feel comfortable at all using them in kids and uh, in adults too. I presume adult neurologists don't use them very often for patients with mitochondrial disorders who have uh, migraines. And uh, so unfortunately our patients are deprived from this effective treatment. But we can use some other medications, Furicet, Furinol, uh, there is a big list. And uh, sometimes I even prescribe methadone for patients with severe headaches. I had a patient with Milas, who one of the mitochondrial disorders who suffered from severe headaches. and. She responded well to methadone, and of course, Motrin and Tylenol can be used as well. As far as prophylactic medications, the medication taken on a daily basis um, are concerned. We child neurologists love medicine, which is called pyreaxin. It is very benign medicine, and its main side effect is appetite increase, and as many kids with mitochondrial disorders have poor appetites. It's loved by parents as well. And then we use tricyclic antidepressants like Alavil, nortriptyline, and in adults, these medications are used as well. One medicine which is used as a first-line uh, drug for prevention of headaches in patients who don't have mitochondrial disorders, the Depakote, we don't use it in patients with mitochondrial disorders. It's actually contraindicated for these patients. And of course, we try to maximize supplements, coenzyme Q10, carnitine, vitamin B2, um, and other vitamins. So headaches are extremely resistant to treatment, not only in kids with migraines and adults with mitochondrial disorders, but in general. And they are more difficult to treat in patients with mitochondrial disorders because um, these patients have lifelong conditions and these headaches are directly related to uh, their disorder. Uh, however, even in patients with mitochondrial disorder, even in kids, there is a chance that headache may get better. Uh, this patient with Milas that I had mentioned, uh, she actually stopped having headaches at some point, and her pa parents attributed that to acupressure that they uh, used, but uh, I'm not 100% sure, but in anyway, she got better with time. As far as the triggers for headaches or migraines in children, it's not always easy to identify them. Illness, heat, dehydration may provoke them. But as far as any specific foods, we do not see this that frequently in children. And of course, there are some other approaches besides uh, medication, besides drugs such as acupuncture and acupressure and biofeedback. And we use that uh, in our patients. We even have an uh, acupuncture clinic at Children's Hospital where we refer our patients. So I think that's enough about the headache. I'll be glad to answer questions later on. So another type of pain in patients with mitochondrial disorders is neuropathic pain. It's a pain coming from the nerves due to nerve damage. These types of nerve problems are called neuropathies, and they may be seen as a patent characteristic feature of mitochondrial disorders. And also, neuropathies may also develop as a part of treatment. For example, at Children's Hospital, we use a medicine called dichloroacetate to lower lactate in patients with mitochondrial disorders, and uh, this medicine may produce neuropathy. And also, neuropathies or nerve damage may develop with time in patients with mitochondrial disorders as a result of 
vitamin deficiency, malnutrition, and um, other, other factors. So we are frequently confronted by questions of whether the child who cannot express him or herself but who is known to have a neuropathy based on uh, a special study uh, called neuroconduction study, whether the child has a pain caused uh, by his or her neuropathy. This is a hard question to answer because some of the neuropathies are painful and some are not. In a newborn or infant with neuropathy, it's almost impossible to answer. A child may be irritable for different reasons and may be in pain that is hard for us to assess. And this is true not only about neuropathies, of course, but about other types of pain in children um, if they're very young, delayed, or not able to communicate. How do we know that a child what child experiences? Uh, the studies have shown that nurses and physicians tend to underestimate pain. There is a consensus about the adults that the mainstay of pain assessment is the patient's self-report and that intensity of pain is whatever the experiencing person says it is. But what do we do with children who frequently are not able to express themselves and to report the pain what they have? We usually try to give our patients the benefit of doubt and presume that they do have pain if they're irritable or appear to be in distress. Uh, there are some indirect signs that our patients may have pain, such as the increases in heart rate and blood pressure, but of course the main sign in kids is irritability. We always have to keep in mind that child may be in pain if he or she is fussy, irritable, or crying without obvious reason. Also, we use pain rating scales, and they're widely used by pain specialists, too. It's not correct to think that delayed or cognitively impaired person is not able to use them. Even very young children understand the idea. For them, not the numbers, but the pictures with sad and smiling face are being used. There's also plenty of data now suggesting that current pain in children adversely affects their development and so obviously our goal is to try to minimize all negative experiences for our young patients and of course to take care of the pain. So just returning back to neuropathies, medications that are used for chronic neuropathic pain are slightly different from those used for migraines. Uh, we of course still use tricyclic antidepressants like Alavil and nortriptyline, but we also use medication called uh, Neurontin and uh, now there is a new medicine called Lyrica which is also very uh, effective and uh, then in the past especially we've been using um, anti-seizure medications like Tegretol and Dilantin and again we try to use big doses, large doses of vitamins and supplements and um, improve the nutrition of our patients. All right, so muscle pains and aches are, of course, very common in patients with mitochondrial disorders because, as we all know, muscles rely heavily on the process of uh, oxidative phosphorylation, which is usually impaired in patients with mitochondrial disorders. And so we frequently um, frequently get complaints of muscle aches and pains in our patients. Um, this pain in muscles may be uh, 
uh, worsened, exacerbated by exercise, exertion, and dehydration. And so we always try to make sure that there is no significant breakdown of muscle tissue because this condition, which uh, we call rhabdomyolysis, could be very dangerous when muscle breaks down. The waste product can damage the kidneys, and this has been described in patients with mitochondrial disorders. So we take complaints about muscle aches very seriously. And uh, uh, the main treatment for that is hydration. And uh, of course, we also use painkillers such as Tylenol and Motrin. And uh, the same medications we use in headaches like tricyclic antidepressants and also uh, sometimes medication that belong to muscle relaxant groups such as flexoril and soma. And um, in rare situations, we use steroids, but of course with caution because they may produce uh, muscle weakness if they're, if they're used for a long time. Uh, some patients with mitochondrial disorders experience uh, dystonia and spasticity changes in the muscle tone, and this is usually due to uh, their brains being affected due to lesions in a certain area of the brain called basal ganglia. We see that quite often in young children with mitochondrial disorders, and especially with Lee disease. And spasticity and dystonia may produce muscle spasms and cause the pain and painful contractions. So the medications that we use in such situations are slightly different. We use a medicine called Artane for dystonia. We use Baclofen, Valium, Clonopin, Benzodiazepines to lower muscle tone, and sometimes even Botox, although, of course, with caution in patients with mitochondrial disorders, but I have several patients who, uh, who get Botox injections on a regular basis. And then um, abdominal pain or belly pain is a huge issue in patients with mitochondrial disorders. This is due to problems with gut motility. There are some forms of mitochondrial disorders when gastrointestinal complaints are the presenting feature. And again, it's very hard to assess these complaints in young children. Stomach pain may be accompanied by nausea, vomiting, constipation, and diarrhea, but young children, of course, have heart time describing those symptoms. And it is generally a rule in pediatrics not to treat abdominal pain with painkillers because they may mimic serious and potentially very dangerous problems such as appendicitis. However, it is being reconsidered and many pain specialists advocate early use of analgesics in abdominal pain. And of course, we have to get help from gastroenterologists in such situations and hope that medications that improve uh, gut motility or relieve constipation or stop diarrhea will help our patients. So pain management is a very difficult area, especially difficult in patients with chronic diseases and especially with such complex diseases like mitochondrial disorders. There are many misconceptions about pain and I will mention just a few of them and this relates to both children and adults. The first one is that the best judge of the experience of severity of pain is the physician or nurse caring for patients. And the answer to that is no. The patient self-report is the most reliable indicator of the existence and intensity of pain. And obviously, in case of young children, uh, parents' report is very important. Second one, 
There is no reason for patients to experience pain when no physical cause for pain can be found. And again, the answer is no. In many cases, no obvious cause for pain could be found. And I think this is particularly true about patients with mitochondrial disorders who frequently feel much worse than they look. And three, patients should not receive analgesics until the cause of pain is diagnosed. And again, no, symptomatic relief of pain should be provided while the cause of pain is investigated. And the last one, physical signs of pain may help with assessment and severity. And again, it's no, lack of pain expression does not mean lack of pain. Different patients have different pain tolerance and also pain expression may reflect cultural difference. So as physicians, we frequently order procedures and studies on our patients that may be associated with pain. For example, multiple blood draws that we order all the time and brain MRIs that we frequently order. For example, for young children who need sedation, MRIs are associated with IV placement and I'm not even talking about invasive tests that we order, skin, muscle biopsies and spinal taps. So, we as physicians will always have to be very critical and decide whether the procedure is indeed necessary. We need to try to spare children and adults painful experiences that they do not need to have. Uh, as neurologists, of course, we deal with patients having pain on a daily basis, but we frequently ask our colleagues from pain service to assist us in management of patients with pain. So let me stop here, and uh, I think I'm going over time, and uh, I will be glad to answer the questions. Serena, you, you did a great job. You covered a lot of information um, and broke it down very clearly. I think what is really revealing is that there are many reasons why a person with mitochondrial disease might have pain, and that some of those might not be the um, intuitive reasons that a physician who's not experienced with mitochondrial disease would necessarily pick up on right away. And so I think that helps both the parents of kids and the adults to, um, you know, have a, a bird's eye view of where that pain could be coming from. I'm sure that there are some questions and you're doing fine on time. So if we want to open the floor and we just politely take turns with one another, I would remind everybody that when you ask a question, please um, introduce yourself first, and then try to make your question relevant for the experience of the group, um, as opposed to a you know individual symptom question with um, Dr. Anselm. So I'll go ahead and, and uh, just open up the floor and let the first person ask a question. Um, this is Joanne Brindley. May I ask one, please? This is an awesome presentation. Would you, by any chance, have an outline that you could give to Christy that she could put on the website, please? Yeah, absolutely. I think we can do that. Because this is a, fun, uh, I'm sorry, I believe this is a wonderful presentation. Thank you. And I think we could all benefit from it because so many, I'm sure I'm not alone in saying so many of us, especially adults, but so many of us have been poo-pooed away when we mention pain or our symptoms, and um, I think this outline would be very helpful, please. Yes, absolutely, we can do that. So I'll, I'll um, I take notes as well as then take Dr. Anselm's notes, and I will actually try 
um, over the weekend to write that up and put it up as a summary. And then it will pop up as a new title on the homepage, Joanne, when you look over under on the right-hand column where it says recent blog posts, mm-hmm. um, all the new titles pop up there. Um, or you could just search for pain up in the little top pain box, up in the little search box, and it, and it should come up if you have trouble finding it. But um, I agree. It's, it's very thorough. Um, that's yeah, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for this comment. And, yes, I absolutely agree. We need to put some outline and about, especially about misconceptions about the pain that patients experience. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, this is Marla Volk. I have a question regarding the muscle that you were uh, talking about mm-hmm. um, and the breakdown of it. Uh, if you are um, using them, if, if, is it uh, not uh, worthwhile to take aerobic exercises and that type of thing? Is that going to harm uh, your muscles? Uh, well, I think it's uh, it's not necessarily. Um, if there is definite history about uh, muscle breakdown, and we do see that in some um, metabolic muscle disorders, but as I uh, told, it was reported in mitochondrial disorders as well. So if there is definite association between exercises and muscle breakdown, then we try to suggest to our patients who limit exercises, but uh, this you, this is a rare, rare condition. Usually our patients with mitochondrial disorders, they experience muscle pain, but there's no definite uh, muscle breakdown. So we generally recommend aerobic exercises. They've been shown in the last years to benefit patients with mitochondrial disorders. So uh, generally we suggest that patients who are able to exercise, that they do exercise, of course, I always helpful to be well hydrated when you're exercising. So, no, it's not a contraindication mitochondrial disorders uh, with uh, some muscle aches. Uh, uh, aerobic exercises are not contraindicated. But uh, again, if there if there there are episodes of muscle breakdown that were documented, and usually what happens uh, when there is muscle breakdown that urine becomes dark and then we can also measure uh, muscle enzyme CPK in the blood and it goes down and we can measure um, the, this muscle breakdown product in the urine and if that was documented that's a very serious condition and then exercises should be very limited. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you Dr. Anthem. And other questions? Uh, yes, this is Kathy in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I went through, I, I, I was diagnosed in 1997, and at the beginning I went through a lot of different things to see if it would help with the pain. And what my experience was, with the exception of steroids, most of the pain drugs that people take either were had no effect at all or made me feel worse. And mm-hmm. I was wondering, is that just the thing that our metabolism is so messed up that things just don't work right or... Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, How common is that? Uh, it's not uncommon for patients, unfortunately, not to have relief from uh, regular medications. And uh, as I had mentioned, we do use steroids sometimes, but of course we cannot use them for long, prolonged periods of time, especially with patients with the underlying muscle uh, diseases because they might produce weakness. 
but it's not uncommon. I don't think we know mechanisms why um, medications do not work, and I hope you try different types of medication. But there are some other approaches that I did not talk in, in much detail about, uh, so-called alternative or complementary approaches, which also might be helpful. So I don't know whether you tried those, uh, like uh, acupuncture, acupressure, relaxation techniques. Uh, they could be also helpful in such situations. Yeah, the, uh, relaxation techniques and uh, mm -hmm. and what I can handle with my old aerobic exercise, like mm -hmm. exercise in the pools, seem to help more than anything else. And then also mm -hmm. just um, keeping the stress levels down. I I don't think I'm experiencing nearly as much pain since I went on disability, and I don't mm -hmm, have to mm -hmm. worry about getting to work every day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, Western medicine does not emphasize alternative approaches to pain management, but nonetheless it is clear that uh, these approaches are very, very valuable in patients with chronic uh, pain, and especially in adults, but they're getting more popular in kids as well. and. Uh, uh, we use acupuncture, and young children usually don't tolerate acupuncture well, so there's such thing as acupressure, which helps. And of course, I'm a big proponent of massage treatment, and uh, unfortunately, massage, as you know, usually is not covered by insurance, but uh, many patients uh, still try to to do that, and you know, get their children involved in massage treatment, and. Uh, and also aquatic therapy, like you had mentioned, in, uh, in like warm pools, uh, this, this type of treatment is also very helpful. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. That was, that, that's very interesting, I think, as a discussion also, is the alternative therapies for um, pain management. I wonder if that is something to... Um, to think about a little further for our mitochondrial disease patients because there are always potential complications for mito patients with um, medications. Um, yeah, I think absolutely. You know, of course, uh, alternative or complementary treatments, they cannot substitute for uh, medications, for pain medications, but they should be complementary and they should not be disregarded because they are not only uh, produce emotional relief, but they also have some physiological effects. It's known that these alternative approaches, they uh, may uh, sort of slow down activity of sympathetic nervous system and that they also may produce uh, the burst of endorphins, these substances in the brain which have analgesic effects. So uh, I'm sure that many of patients with mitochondrial disorders may benefit from those type of treatments. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we're lucky at Children's Hospital to have acupuncture clinic where I can refer some of my patients. And uh, sometimes this uh, acupuncture even is covered by insurance, but uh, um, in most cases it's not. And again, this is a reflection of sort of our neglect of this alternative types of treatment in America. I think they, they could be very, very helpful. So, um, other questions? It's been a great conversation so far. Other questions? Yes, this is uh, Fiano, and I have a 10-year-old who has been diagnosed with Lee's complex one deficiency. Mm -hmm. My son is a child who doesn't complain easily. If he has a headache, 
or if he has fever, he will not tell me unless I touch him. Are there any signs for me to watch if he has a headache or a migraine? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, now, um, would your son be able to use uh, the pain scale? What usually is done for children is like a scale where there's a smiley face and then uh, a very sad face and a face with tears and we use that in kids all the time so when they're not able to express themselves and not willing to talk about their pain they, in most cases they're able to point to how they feel on this scale and uh, uh, of course if child is in pain um, usually they would slow down their activities they uh, wouldn't interact that readily, but it's sometimes very, very hard to, to for us to know what child experiences. So I, I would probably try to use the scale if he can do that. And we can actually maybe even post uh, this scale also on the Mitre Action site. They are sort of standard scales used by pain uh, clinics. I'd be happy to. Um, I mean, we can link it right into. Yeah. Mm -hmm to um, this discussion also so that um, it'll be there for the future, you know, as well. So, mm -hmm. excellent. Additional questions? I have a question, Christy. This is Wendy um, in Fort Worth, Texas. I was wondering, does possibly, my son has mitochondrial myopathy. Um, does he, does like strengthening the muscle, would that help um, reduce some of his pain in his legs? He tends to have a lot of leg pain, and he does get in a pool and kick his legs around and get on his little tricycle. Would that possibly, can that help? I usually encourage exercises in patients with, uh, my patients with mitochondrial disorders, aerobic exercises and uh, uh, tricycling. Uh, I think that that could be helpful. Again, this is not a substitute for medication if the child is in significant pain here, she needs um, uh, needs medicine. But I'm always asked by physical therapists to what degree uh, they can work with these patients with mitochondrial disorders. And it's very, very individual. As long as patients tolerate exercises and uh, they do not produce significant pain or significant fatigue afterwards, uh, aerobic exercises have been shown to be beneficial. And uh, um, again, after exercises, you probably can put your son in the pool, in the warm pool, um, and that might be helpful as well. It's always it's good not to overdo that. I have patients who complain to me that they're extremely exhausted after physical therapy, and that's not what we're looking for. But in general, exercises are helpful for patients with mitochondrial uh, myopathies. Yes, I do limit his time, and he does take Neurontin at night to help with pain and sleeping problems, so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we use the medication as well. And does it help? It does, but he still seems to have more pain. We we just adjusted it again, so mm -hmm. we're still trying to, to find the the perfect dose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Some days, but he seems when he's in the pool, it, that just seems to me he has less pain in the months where he can get in the pool yeah. than the months yeah. that he mm -hmm. can't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. why I was wondering. Yeah, yeah. Is there a, um, a recovery method for pain that you recommend? 
Dr. Anselm. So for the person who doesn't necessarily, there's there's pain that's chronic, mm-hmm. and then there's pain that I think happens from overexertion, dehydration, mm-hmm. particularly in the summertime. I think mm-hmm. that um, any of the patients, kids and adults, can get a little overdone with the heat mm-hmm. and then have mm-hmm. to pay for it, and pain may be part of the reason. Um, how do you approach that? Uh, well, usually patients who have significant chronic pain take uh, medications on a regular basis, something that's helpful to them. And then, of course, uh, as you had mentioned, the breakthrough episodes. And uh, first of all, it's very important to know what uh, what produced, what, what the trigger for this breakthrough episode was and try to avoid it in the future. Um, but, uh, um, again, hydration, especially for muscle pain, hydration is extremely, extremely important. And then on top of uh, chronic medication, it's always possible to take painkillers. So, for example, somebody who takes Elevil uh, for chronic pain can always take some strong medication in case there is a pain. And there are some other methods that I use, like heat packs and cold packs and, again, aquatic therapy. That, that could be very useful and helpful. Thank you. Other questions for Dr. Anselm? This is your chance. <laughs> Everything you wanted to know. Uh, this is a question for Dr. Anselm. It's, it's Jean Shepherd. I just mm-hmm. want to thank you, uh, Dr. Anselm, for uh, just a, an excellent presentation. And thank you. also, Christy, for inviting her. Yeah. We're, we're, at each time that I hear a physician speak on our calls, I always just feel so proud that, um, that we, that you've taken the time and the energy to devote to be in this space and to talk so honestly and frankly with the patients. And I think it's, um, it's very useful for us as a community because it helps us, the parents and the patient population, grow together with the clinicians and um, and not always just be in that very limited environment of the office. And you did an excellent job, Dr. Anselm. So well, thank you, you so much. And thank I want to thank everyone who joined us today. And uh, um, we feel your pain. We physicians are trying to do our best. We are not always successful, but... Uh, we keep working on that. And, of course, I want to thank Christy for arranging these talks and for mediating and for doing an excellent job as a, on my action committee. So thank you so much, Dr. Anselm. So um, any final questions for her? All right. So I, I will say goodbye to you, Dr. Anselm. I do have a couple other announcements for the group if you'd like to stay on. But thank you again. Let's all give, you know, Dr.
and shipping away one flake at a time. <laughs> um, but over time, you make a pretty big hole. So you know, <laughs> um, so we're we're growing, I think, um, as a community, and, and the physicians appreciate, I think, the opportunity to have that chance to, to talk with us. As I mentioned before, if you have uh, contact with physicians or if you've heard a physician speak, it doesn't have to just be a, a doctor or any um, person who is a provider or clinician, maybe a nurse or someone in hospice or someone who's a pharmacist who you think would be um, compelling and advocating for the patients and talk to us, please feel free to email me their contact information and suggestions for topics. You can reach me always at director at mitoaction.org. So I just wanted to make a couple other announcements, and uh, these are good things. As I mentioned earlier on the call, for those of you who weren't on yet, we're, we've been gearing up since January, but now we're really getting excited about Awareness Week coming up. And so that's going to be the third week in September will be International Mitochondrial Disease Awareness Week. And what I'd like to encourage each of you to do is to reach out in your own community now and start planting the seeds for something that you can do during Awareness Week that will raise awareness. It might be that you ask to have information about the disease out at your local hospital. It might be that the school that is in your um, town, you know, holds a fundraiser. It might be that, you know, you have as many people in your neighborhood, you know, wear green ribbons and tie the green ribbons on their car and, you know, be active for mitochondrial disease awareness that week. It might be that you send the link to mitoaction.org to learn more about mitochondrial disease to everybody in your email address book. Whatever it is that you decide to do, um, I want to help you with that because I think collectively the idea of Awareness Week is that we're all really actively out there spreading the message that week. And that's what makes an impact. And our goal is that in the future that mitochondrial disease is as common and mentioned as frequently in the media and the news, for example, as autism has been recently and as cancer is. And I think that that is actually not too far away. So we are the advocates that do that. If I can help you, here's some resources that I have that can help. I have a press release that basically just gives a brief background about mitochondrial disease as well as gives, um, you know, a little bit of information about what is Mitochondrial Disease Awareness Week. And you can find that um, on the website under the Mito Awareness section, specifically under the What Can I Do area. Or you can just email me or um, Lisa Parker. And I think to contact Lisa, who's the awareness chair, it's awareness at mitoaction.org. The other thing that is um, really exciting news, and those of you who took the time to call in today are going to be the first ones to know, is that next week you will be able to um, go on the website and see Dr. Corson and Margaret Clem's symptom management guide for mitochondrial disease that has been um, a work in progress for about two and a half years and is actually um, 
99% ready and will go live either over the weekend or sometime Monday or Tuesday. So check frequently. I will update the home page to a direct link once it's up live. Um, you can also read about it under the publications tab. But if you don't know what I'm talking about, this is a a 180-page resource that breaks down every aspect of the body and how it can be affected by mitochondrial disease in a very straightforward manner. The intended audience is the primary care doctor who doesn't know how to handle the mitochondrial disease patient. But we purposely did not make it a protected document so that patients wouldn't be able to read it. Instead, we are making it clear that, you know, Dr. Corson and, and his nurse practitioner, Margaret Clem, um, wrote it with the intention of educating the primary care specialist. But we wanted, we know, and they know, that the patient is often their own best advocate. And so this is um, not for you to treat yourself, but for you to use as a tool um, as you're educating your community and your physician and so forth. So I'm really excited about it. It's been a tremendous amount of effort on all of our part to get this up and running. And so this will be available next week. So I encourage you to, to check back frequently. And um, depending on how cooperative my kids are with me this afternoon, I hope to get this um, summary and the notes from Dr. Anselm posted this afternoon as well. So I encourage all of you to, um, to check into that. Any other announcements that anyone would like to share? Please do. Uh, this is Siano. You just uh, mentioned green ribbons. Where do you get them from and what's the cost of them? So you can get a green ribbon pin from us and we don't charge for them. Um, so if you send an email to orders, you know, like I'm going to order something, O-R-D-E-R-S, at mitoaction.org. Um, we have a volunteer named Patty who lives in California and just give her your address and how many pins you would like and she'll send them to you. Thank you. In the, in the spirit of awareness, we felt that um, that's a cost that MitoAction should absorb thanks to the community donations that you guys give as opposed to charging for them. So um, it's always our mission to take the cost away from the families who already have enough of a burden just to live with mitochondrial disease and and shift those other places as much as we can. So um, they're really nice pins too. I I move mine around to every different jacket that I'm wearing during the week. So I put one on my purse and my kids put them on their backpack. So that we we have um, and we have some bracelets also. We have some rubber bracelets. So um, if you'd rather have that, you can make a note about it. You know the the silicone type bracelets and they say um, get energized mitoaction.org on them. But I feel like the mito, for the kids, those are great. For the, the mito pin really um, catches folks' attention. I encourage you to order an extra one and give it to your doctor. <laughs> I think <that> well. Good. <laughs> <laughs> um, any other questions or announcements? All right. Well, I hope that today was helpful for you all. Next month, um, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Fran Kendall, who was previously in practice with Dr. Schaffner in Atlanta. Um, Dr. Schaffner and Dr. Kendall were in practice together when their practice was Horizon Molecular Medicine. Dr. Schaffner has since 
split off and has a um, different practice called medical neurogenetics. But Dr. Kendall is um, practicing, and she's um, not as much interested in the diagnostic process of mitochondrial disease, I think, as the long-term health of people with mitochondrial disease, and she's practicing at Emory University in Atlanta. So she'll be joining us on August 1st, and specifically, I've asked her to talk a little bit about two areas of particular interest for her, which are um, creatine and there's a, and the debate about CoQ10, how much is too much. So I'll be posting that information in, in newsletters and emails and on the website, but um, for those of you who would like to go ahead and calendar it, that's August 1st, same time, um, noon Eastern time, same phone number that you used today. All right, happy July, and uh, stay cool. Mist yourself when you go outside with some water, <laughs> and, and I hope that today was helpful, and I'll um, get right right on working on the notes from Dr. Anselm and getting the summary posted for you, as well as the audio file. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Enjoy your day. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Hello? Thank <laughs> you.